I think if you really are nice, kind to people while trying to, while, you know, doing your best to execute, uh, you can build a very, uh, you know, a really great culture. And also, you know, one that's, uh, that's diverse and inclusive. You need a whole bunch of people coming in with different perspectives if you're willing to solve a big problem. You, you need all those different perspectives and they need to be respected. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Most people find healthcare unmanageable and confusing. Even people in the industry can have a hard time. Our guest today, Dr. Ronald Dixon, is trying to change that through his company, CareHive. CareHive helps patients manage chronic disease through their user-friendly platform and methods. Ron is the current CEO of CareHive. He has also founded and headed Healthcare 360 and served as the medical director at MGH. He's also a natural entrepreneur with over 20 years of experience in the industry and some great advice for up-and-comers. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you for joining today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited uh, uh, f- uh, to have our conversation today. But I thought before we dive into your work at CareHive, uh, can you share with us your personal journey that brings you to where you are today? Sure. Um, you know, and the journey starts, you know, it always starts early, right? So I remember as a as a kid, always being interested in the logic of things and often that meant that when you're, you know, you're doing something, you're delivering papers or you're working at a golf course, you're always thinking, well, what if, what if I don't deliver the papers and I hire somebody else to do it, but then I have some, I collect and give them a portion of the collections. Uh, and so that was kind of the, some of the ideas that I had and my parents would often discourage those ideas. My parents were pretty, you know, they're strict religious Baptists from Jamaica. So they weren't really that much about entrepreneurship or money. Um, nonetheless, uh, I, I, you know, my father was a, was a biology teacher. Uh, that's why I always had a strong interest in science. Uh, and he was a fantastic teacher. He was actually my teacher in high school. Um, and after high school, uh, I went on to college and decided to study biology and psychology. And, and then I really did not know what to do. I thought about medicine. I thought about doing a PhD in uh, psychology. Uh, and I ended up taking that route. Um, I applied and got a scholarship to go to do a, uh, start my PhD in clinical neuropsychology. Did that for a couple of years. And then really, it was an experience uh, that I had working for an NGO in Sierra Leone where I was uh, working with children who uh, were starving. And we were uh, doing basically you know, nutrition therapy and, and getting them from uh, out of the hospital. Uh, and I really started to think, well, there's really an impact that you can have as a clinician that is broader and 
and you can have that impact anywhere, whether, you know, whether you're in North America or you're in, in Africa or, or wherever. And that really forced a career change. And I left my uh, PhD after my master's and then decided to go to medical school and went to medical school and in medical school uh, really enjoyed all aspects of medical school. Actually really liked the surgical aspect. Uh, but when choosing a residency, I felt like surgery was going to be somewhat limiting in terms of the opportunity to do other things. I knew I had a lot of varied interests and I knew I, I felt like I wanted to do something that combined um, healthcare and then something that, that combined population care. Mm -hmm. uh, and I decided to choose internal medicine and went to uh, Mass General to do the internal medicine residency. And while I was there, that interest in kind of population care persisted. And the interest kind of generalized to that of just innovation. Like, how do you use innovation as a way to spur change in how you're providing care for people? And after my residency, I uh, went on to take a position as an attending at Mass General and uh, sought out a fellowship. Uh, and it, uh, it was called the MGH Health Policy Fellowship, and it focused on uh, the business of healthcare and <clears throat> an opportunity to do projects. And in my case, I chose projects around in innovation and change in healthcare delivery, focused on innovation. Where do you get your innovation? I mean, when you think about population care, mm -hmm. and you know, you mentioned about you want to uh, have uh, other people hire other people to deliver a paper on your behalf. <laughs> I think there's opportunity to scale there. Uh, like, where do you start connecting the dot? Like, hey, you know, I can yeah. do more. But yes, and I think it was the reason why I became interested in population care and technology was that. I felt like the one-to-one, -one, although valuable as a physician, uh, the impact that you could make with, with a many-to-one approach is more significant. But um, I like to say that, that healthcare, specifically chronic disease care, and, and primary care hasn't moved much since the typewriter. It's still kind of make a visit, come on in, have a follow-up. Mm -hmm. And there was this grand opportunity that if you started to leverage technology, and uh, data that was quantitative that, that you could then really manage larger populations of people in a much more innovative way. And then the second piece that I guess it relates to the paper piece is, you know, the, the clinician, especially in primary care, ends up doing everything. Like there's just a ton of work that flows across the desk. <laughs> and that's just, a, that's not top of license work, right? So get technology and analysis to really improve both the workflow and, and the inputs and outputs of that physician so that he or she is really focused on what he or she needs to be focused on. And then other people and tools and technologies are really helping uh, those people that don't quite require that same level of focus. So you were doing that fellowship and after that fellowship, what happened? I did the fellowship, uh, really enjoyed it. And I started to really test some of these ideas. And I had some great support from my practice director um, from an organization called the CIMIT, the 
uh, Center for the Integration of Medicine and Innovative Technology, uh, which was a consortium out of Mass General and other places in Boston. So they provided like a fertile playground to try some ideas around, you know, telehealth. How can you try telemedicine in primary care? Uh, what kind of efficiencies does it create? And then can you measure that? And can you actually try that in a practice environment? And I did that. We looked at telehealth in a primary care environment. We looked at remote monitoring through through a body media device. And this was all in like the late 2000s. Um, and what we found through all of our work was that patients loved uh, telehealth, but there was not a massive time savings. And this was like still video of telehealth. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a massive time savings. And it drove me towards more the asynchronous component of telehealth. Like if you can start um, leveraging technology to ask patients questions, like the same kind of questions that you'd ask in the office, what kind of gains could you make from an efficiency perspective? And then could you actually have more touches with the patient? So like, Mm -hmm. could you just send some questions and then they answer and then somebody interprets them and says, actually, they're stable. Um, It looks like their depression is stable. You don't need to see them or actually they're worse and you need to see them in video or they're really worse and they need to be in the office or hospitalized. So you can start imagining that you could figure out triage and escalation based off of all these data sources. Um, and that's, that's what healthcare 360 was. So after I did the fellowship, uh, I actually started a company. This was the entrepreneurial. So I started a company that was really focused around this chronic disease, asynchronous piece called healthcare 360. Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to kind of pitch it to leadership at then partners, now MGB, and the CFO um, and the CEO of the MGPO, they supported this uh, this effort. And uh, it was really interesting because I wanted it to live like a startup within the ecosystem of the academic medical center because Mm -hmm. I felt we would be more nimble. I wanted to have a project manager I wanted to have my own software team. I wanted to have my own liaisons and then interface with, you know, the greater IT and the greater hospital system. And they they, they allowed for that. So I was very grateful for that. It's almost like you got this uh, dedicated pilot location for you and learn from it. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I pitched it as a pilot and... Our, the first pilot was with 10 conditions and 250 or so visits with eight different doctors. And the output had to be published in a peer-reviewed journal. And it had to be positive in terms of efficiency for the pilot to be scaled. And uh, fortunately, we were able to show a 80% efficiency gain. So it took the doctor one-fifth the time. Mm-hmm. to manage a patient if they were doing this asynchronous question review. So for things like diabetes, hypertension, depression, instead of bringing the patient back in, just getting the questions responded to, and then having a patient liaison ensure that the patient was responding in the right time because you set up an automated response, an automated follow-up for that patient to say, in 30 days, I need a follow-up on your blood pressure. In 60 days, I need a follow-up on your diabetes. And uh, that result of that 80% time savings and significant efficiency uh, led for the hospital to uh, support the growth and scale of this uh, across the primary care practices. So from one practice to to all of them. Mm-hmm. 
and then across uh, the specialty groups and then outside of uh, the MGH into North Shore. And so the, the broader partners ecosystem. And so, of course, this is like in the late 2000, uh, where not everybody's doing this sort of thing. Yeah, I, well, what happened was the first the first tranche of work was in the late 2000s. And, and then we, you know, the development of the platform and the scale was from 2011 to 2015, 16. It sounds uh, like timely getting you guys are like know that COVID is coming. <laughs> well, I didn't know that COVID was coming. Uh, I and and really, what happened it was it was pretty classic. Like we we did a good job of scaling. Had fantastic people, like the doctors at the MGH were. You know, many of them were very supportive and very interested in this type of methodology. They thought it provided patient access. Um, one thing that we did give the the clinicians was automation so that they didn't have to like do a lot of typing for documentation because that's one of the things that I hated doing. Mm-hmm. So I figured let's take a lot of the documentation out and make a lot of it automated. Um, but the challenge of course was the payment model. So even though you're providing uh, much better access and more frequent access in some cases, uh, you're providing some ease of use for the provider. Uh and you're getting this quantitative data that lends itself nicely to analytics. The basic payment model still was fee for service and remained fee for service in 2016. So we had some um, funders that started to look at us uh, and the challenge they had with, with the, with the business was that, you know, it really didn't work in fee for service because it took visits away from fee for service type visits and made a lot of visits, you know, online. So, but now with the, with the COVID, there's a lot of changes in the reimbursement. Yeah, you're so right, Christine. Yeah. I mean, what happened with COVID, you know, that's the funny story is in 2016, uh, you know, I was, we we were still doing it at MGH, but it it didn't seem like it was going to scale any further. And uh, I, got the opportunity to leave and to go into industry and work for Google, Verily, on Duo, a digital diabetes company. I did that for a couple of years. Uh, and one of the main reasons I left was that, you know, Epic, the EMR system was coming to MGH and Epic basically told me that they were going to do what, what 360 did. And uh, I should stick around if I wanted to manage the integration. And I'm not really much of a manager that type of work so i left uh and then two years on duo and then the pandemic hits and then some of the investors that had seen healthcare 360 called me uh-huh. in 2020 and said you remember that you know i remember you from that work you were doing you know that that was some really interesting stuff would you bring that to a different company and i was like what in fact i already had a job i this is when you, with the on duo no, I uh, on Duo went through a change in control, so there was an opportunity to to exit on Duo, and I, I took advantage of that after some mm-hmm. you know, fantastic learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had another job lined up. You know, the lawyer was was sealing up the deal of the contract, but then I got this call, and they said, 
uh, you know, we'd like you to bring your your old IP and your work to this new company. I'm like, this is a baby. It's an entrepreneur's dream. Like you, you gave up. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, maybe back to life. So, of course, I followed that that dream and joined this other company. And, uh, you know, what's funny was I joined this, you know, I joined this company and um, it was a urgent care company that did um, home visits and they had a telemedicine front end. And right when I joined, COVID was like in full bore and, and the urgent care company really focused on COVID and COVID testing. And unfortunately, it didn't, didn't work out that, that well going after COVID. And uh, that's when the investors said, you know, let's, let's move the company. Let's pivot the company really with more focus on uh, chronic care and asynchronous engagement and clinical navigation. And um, then they asked me to, to kind of pivot the company and then start leading the company. <laughs> and now I think we just have this tremendous opportunity in front of us to really make an impact on a lot of people's lives. And that's exactly what Healthcare 360 were, was. Uh, it was, but this... 2.0. Yes, and it's a big 2.0 because one thing that, you know, the MGH, we were able to build great content. So we built mm -hmm. content for a whole number of different disease states from primary care to uh, specialty care, everything from, you know, epilepsy, hepatitis C, uh, depression in psychiatry, depression in primary care. So all this, this content, but the whole vision was to leverage data science so that you start to get a real understanding of prediction. As more people move through, you can use science to say data science to say, Oh, well, this person with this set of responses, they go here they need an immediate escalation to a psychiatrist. This person, you know, they're stable. They just mm -hmm. need a follow-up question set in three months or six months. And if you start scaling that across a number of disease states, you start to create this compendium of escalation that is informed by data. Mm -hmm. But that requires a very strong data backend, which uh, we didn't have an investment in while well, I was at MGH. And it also requires a data front end because if you understand the opportunity in your population from the outset to make an impact with this type of asynchronous clinical uh, navigation platform, then you really have uh, a much better um, anticipation of what the return on investment is going to be if you're an insurer or an at-risk you know, provider client. Uh, so this combination of like really upfront data analysis, understanding the opportunity, this impact with this asynchronous first clinical navigation piece, and then this backend analytics so that we're con consistently improving uh, the escalation pathways while measuring the return on investment for a client. Uh, that that's what makes this, you know, really a a, a much more superpowered uh, a tool. So the, this is the CareHive company. Uh, maybe can you give us uh, a quick just uh, description about what not just like you know over view about what is CareHive. I mean, you touch on a bit about it, but uh, if you can tell our listener. Yeah, CareHive is a, it's a uh, clinical navigation business. So we focus again on asynchronous engagement with 
patients as the first line. And then we have clinical navigators who are the front lines of the responses for patients. And then we have escalation pathways up to nurses, APPs, and doctors uh, to help the patient get to the level of care that they need. And the patients come into us for for three really for three issues. Uh, they come in for um, urgent issues. A lot of the time, we are managing a group of patients that are given to us from a providers, a book of business, typically an at risk provider, who on uh, nights and weekends are looking for some relief, and we provide that asynchronous front door and escalation. Uh, and, and the benefit that we, we do for these providers is twofold. One, we're decompressing them in a time where providers are just, you know, they've had it. And then secondly, um, we, we have knowledge of their network, so we're navigating in-network. And then we try to solve things with our navigators only or with escalation to telemedicine, so we prevent kind of the bricks and mortar and ER escalation. Mm-hmm. Plus one use case for this asynchronous uh, clinical mm-hmm. navigation that we built. Uh, the second is for uh, insurers, and the insurers are very interested in making sure people end up in value-oriented sites of service. So we're doing that for certain insurers, and again, that that requires uh, an understanding of the insurer's data. And then, thirdly, um, it, there are certain at-risk providers and insurers that have a lot of Medicare Advantage or manage Medicaid, where understanding risk is really important. And so we use the technology to uh, shine light on a population at risk and then see what the opportunity for accurate diagnosis and accurate risk coding is with our technology. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. Right. And so you mentioned that your the care have pivoting from the urgent care to this. Help us understand what's the process how do you come to that conclusion that this is a good time to pivot and why? Um, I think one was fiscal, right? So, you know, any business requires some sort of um, fiscal bottom line, you know, analysis to understand if it's going to be viable or not. And uh, we felt that the kind of urgent care, is a, it's, that's a tough business uh, at, at scale. Uh, and the opportunity we felt was really in the chronic care, chronic disease, uh, navigation spaces. We felt like a lot of people with chronic care, they end up either in an emergency room or they end up in an acute care setting that could be prevented if they had better access to care, which is what we provide through technology and then navigation. So like handholding basically. So, uh, they don't end up just bouncing from care spot to care spot my one of my advisors calls it a medical pinball like people they come in to the uh they come into the system and then they have an interaction and then have an mri somewhere else and then have a follow-up here and and it's not coordinated 
And if you have somebody who's really navigating, uh, navigating for you, being your guide, uh, that can really help both limit um, excessive you know, interactions that are unnecessary with the system, excessive costs, and really improve the experience. I mean, mm-hmm. I know for a fact, you know, even when I'm trying to navigate the system sometimes for family, you know, I'm a physician and I know the system and it's still a challenge. There's tons of calls that I make and, you know, I'll go to the, around the back door to talk to friends that I know that, you know, that are in the field. Then uh, for the naive or for the, just the average consumer, it's just such a, a morass uh, that we as clinical navigators can really help relieve some of the burden for these patients. Yeah, I think sometimes when when you're healthy, you don't think about it as much. But I think oh, yeah. especially patient with chronic condition, this is kind of like a full time job. <laughs> I know, I know, and it's it's just not it's not easy. And there's lots of little trap doors as you're walking down the path that could make you all of a sudden, you know, you, you, something gets missed, and then you have to start all over again. And that's what mm-hmm. we really try not to avoid through um, you know, holding the patient's hands through the journey. Yeah. I mean, especially as, as you know, you, you're mentioning earlier about your uh, experience with the uh, healthcare 360 uh, with the fee for service. And now as the world is moving toward the value-based care, can you tell us how this fit into that new way of healthcare. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Well, for one, we already had evidence from an efficiency standpoint that there's just this massive time savings once you move towards asynchronous. And, you know, if you can create value both on the time perspective for the provider while maintaining the same amount of, you know, quality outcomes, and that's, that's a real win. Uh, the second piece that we felt uh, came from evidence that we've had for the past year uh, at, at CareHive, really focused on some of the avoidance of expended, expensive events uh, in ED utilization or bricks and mortar utilization through um, you know, our digital front door. And we saw that with patients with access to it, we had significant savings uh, in, the, you know, in the area of you know, nine, eight to nine bucks per member per month in that first year. And uh, up to 16 uh, in that second year. So significant savings for the member if they have access to something that navigates them, keeps them in the network, gives them access to uh, a very easy to access touch point so that if they have an, an issue, they can just get on the phone. And they can, some of these members, they're not necessarily. Um, you know, they're not technophile, so they might actually just call. We have navigators will answer the phone and ask questions, or they can go through the phone and have an interaction on their phone. So we we recognize that not everybody is going to be a digital, you know, digital native mm-hmm. or, or digital friendly. Mm-hmm. But we want to just give them access to somebody to help them solve their problem. And, uh, and, and that's what we're doing. Yeah. So I know we are almost uh, towards our time, and I want to may ask you, uh, one last question. I mean, you have experienced starting a company with Healthcare 360 and bring it into, you know, doing a lot of good work with one of the largest, you know, Massachusetts General Hospital is huge institution. And you have experience working in Onduo, which is a large 
large startup. <laughs> uh, it's almost mega like you're startup. in, right? It's like mega startup. And yeah. then the care hive uh, where you have to change and pivot. And what is the lesson learned that when you learn all from all this different experience that you can share with um, uh, early stage yeah. entrepreneurs? Yeah. So, uh, p- you know, people and teams are what allow you to execute on anything. So the pivot has not been easy. Um, but. It wasn't, you know, it's not just not me. It's the group of people that I'm working with that have allowed it to be possible. And I feel very fortunate to work with tremendous people um, that make it possible to do pretty much anything. So I'm very, I'm very confident about our capacity to execute on the work that we have planned. And the only reason I have confidence is because of the people. And that's the thing that I take away. I trained you know, in the two th- early 2000s, you know, MGH, it was like, like very, um, uh, you know, singular, like you would take the mountain and carry it on your back. Uh, but in, in the current world, in the company, when you're innovating and trying to make change, you have to rely on a team. And the way you build a team is the most important thing because if you build a team that is in it for the mission and also feels um, aligned uh, around the mission and around the culture, that goes along such a long way. I thought it was all like platitudes, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that is the big takeaway. It's like if you can get people that are aligned around a mission that work well together. And you give them the freedom to just do the work. Like I, you know, I've, I've learned that you just back off. You have great people and you do not try to manage them. You're like great people, people smarter than you. They know how to manage themselves and they know how to motivate people. And you have that culture Then I think anything can be accomplished. And how do you set that culture? Because you said it's definitely not platitude. And- yeah, you start from... Starts from you know, you have to set it by example uh, and and lead by example. And that's another thing I've learned. Like, you know, it is, I'm not singular. I do not know everything. I'm always trying to learn. Um, and then I surround myself with people who have similar values. Like, we, we do not know, have all the answers. And we're generally nice. Like, we're generally nice to people. And I think that makes a big difference. Because I've seen that... Uh, I've seen the opposite in other places where I've worked and I think it matters. I think if you really are nice, kind to people while trying to, while, you know, doing your best to execute, uh, you can build a very, you know, a really great culture. And also, you know, one that's, uh, that's diverse and inclusive. You need a whole bunch of people coming in with different perspectives. If you're really going to solve a big problem. You, you need all those different perspectives and they need to be respected. Yeah, well, that's good. That's, uh, it's, um, it's interesting because I, I had a conversation with Tyler Schultz last week uh, mm-hmm. and he was sharing with us about his experience working at Theranos. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. so the opposite of what you just said. <laughs> and look what happened to the company. So I think... Yeah. Treating your team very well. It's oh yeah, because 
Yeah, it's all about how you treat people. Because then they, if you do that, I do think that people will be like, well, I, if, I, if I'm treated well, then I'm going to treat other people well. And then that cascades throughout your organization, right? Uh, yeah. And then you have, that's, to me, that's the DNA of a winning organization. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're uh, thinking that way. I think the world is a better place when everybody is nicer. And I used to tell, I mean, I was telling my son when we saw somebody who was like doing a bit rude or road rage sort of on the traffic. And I said, no, I said, I feel sorry for that person because I think his life or her life must be really hard right now. Because I think when, you know, it's when you sprinkle niceness and kindness and generosity usually come from a place that you feel like. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can be happier, but you know. Right, and, but, I, and I think you know when I think about what we want to do with our patients in terms of clinical navigation, you have to be kind. People are always, especially with chronic disease, are coming from a place of stress and uncertainty, right. and you have to start off with that, you know, olive branch, and yeah. uh, that's always the best start of the, the conversation, and um, yeah, it's very important in the ethos. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us your story. Thanks, great to be here. Great to meet you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.